Welcome to the first and initial episode of Generation Space. I'm your host, Christopher Clicks, and in today's episode, we will take a look at what one of Elon Musk's companies kind of demonstrated last week. Uh, if you missed it, uh, it's, it was technically Neuralink's second public um, demonstration session or or press conference or however you want to call it. Um, this time it was more focused on basically recruiting engineers and talented people to work at Neuralink. Um, they are a team of 100 people or so right now and, and they need more, more uh, basically hands to work on, on the project and um, finally deliver a prototype that works with humans as well and well not work works from a technical point of view but rather it is used in a combination or together with a human being instead of of a pig um, so let's uh, take a step back for now and talk basically uh, roughly about the context a bit. So for those of you who don't know what Neuralink specifically is and and what is happening at the company, I definitely recommend you to check out the presentation. It's only like an hour or so, hour and a half, and you can find it on, on YouTube. I will link the, uh, the, the official video of uh, Neuralink in, in the description so you can check it out. And Elon Musk and his team do a very good job in answering all the questions. There's a Q&A session at the end. And they cover pretty much everything that one would want to know about this brain interface. It's basically a chip that is implemented in the skull of, of an animal or a human being by a robot. So the robot is doing the entire surgery, which only takes an hour or so and the the robot injects 1024 threats so you can think about it like um like wires that are very very thin and it injects those wires into to the brain and then the chip itself is kind of sealing the the drilling of, of of the robot um in in the skull so it's kind of an all-around solutions you could say pretty much to implement this this chip and what it does is as of right now it technically only reads those in information and a as, as far as i know some sort of um neural network uh I, i'm not quite sure if it is machine learning specifically deep learning or just some algorithm uh, algorithms that are programmed by the team but technically those information are than processed and interpreted into what this could mean. So they, they showed a very impressive example of a pig that is kind of sniffing around and every time the, the snout actually touches something, the, the neurons were firing and the, the software is then re like reading those information, those neurons that are firing and converting them into a useful piece of information and basically telling with a probability i th like metaphorically speaking i think um this now just touched something or not um again this is like a very i'm trying to to describe it in a very simple way that's easy to understand if you don't have like that much of a background in um, AI research and when it comes to neural nets and so neural networks and and machine learning but this is basically how we can think of it so it's more like reading a piece of information which is then converted almost or I think you can also like already call it real time and then this compressed piece of information is then basically interpreted as that's happening. In this case, the snout is touching something. And basically, what I found, 
what I find is very interesting is the way they present what this um, brain-machine interface can do. And naturally, there are, I, I would say, roughly four major topics that come to mind depending on who you are, what your field of expertise and interest is. But um, all those four topics were pretty much well covered by Elon Musk and his team, but also by um, Lex Friedman, and you probably know him. Uh, he's a very talented um, scientist who also happens to have a podcast. And he talks about, um, like for half an hour or so, about all those major topics. He actually goes into a bit more detail instead of only four major topics. But just to summarize, you can think of it as, first of all, um, the most obvious thing, I would say, is a, a metal, uh, medical point of view. So what could this brain-machine interface do that um, ultimately helps human beings? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and there are many different like areas and, and fields of interest that the, the basically Neuralink could help when it comes to um, moving parts of your body again that, um, for example, because of an accident, um, you lost control over, or when it comes to, to vision, when it comes to blindness, or actually adding a supervision, so adding the possibility of basically seeing infrared or ultraviolet, depending on <laughs> what you want, basically, which, which wavelength you choose. But I will get to, back to this specific point in, in a bit later in the podcast, but the second point, or the second major topic you could say is <laughs> naturally something that um, arguably more um, younger people are interested in and that is gaming. Naturally this might not be the main focus of this brain-machine interface but obviously it can be used for this as well and when I think about gaming I, I mean interpreting for example when it comes to aiming at something so we don't um, I'm not, I'm not uh, quite sure if you might have seen this um, on the internet somewhere because it's, I mean, it's technically quite new, but there are some pieces of AI, or I shouldn't say AI, uh, rather um, trained models that you can use to track your 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 eyes, basically to to track where you are looking on the screen, and at a, such such a fast. Uh, processing time that it is actually helpful and you can aim at something without actually using the mouse but rather using your eyes and something like that could be interesting for this type of gaming use as well um, also it could be interesting for um, transferring audio so three like in this case literal 360 audio into <laughs> directly into your brain technically um, but all those kind of things could be interesting. Um, and in this case, I would expand the, the topic of gaming to gaming and entertainment. But it technically is all the same when it comes to, to the usage point of this, this uh, topic. The next one is... Um, well, let's go with... Let's go with usability. So... Uh, naturally, if you have a connection to a machine that is working in both directions, so read and write, then you might think about using this interface to access information or to control devices, other machines, with um, your, your brain as your, your main uh, controller, so to speak. So you won't use like your typical uh, mouse or touchscreen on your phone or voice commands. You would use thoughts to directly send a, a command to a device. And to give you an example, um, which also came up at the press conference is you could summon at some point your Tesla, for example. Uh, it's a very simple command and you could train thinking this and, and the, the model could, so the, the machine learning model could then learn to, to see, so to speak, this thought and this thought with, let's say, a 
99% um, probability would then summon your Tesla. And that could be something that is technically not even that difficult to implement as soon as you have the access. So um, I, again, I'm not a professional AI and machine learning researcher, but I do have quite a, a good, um, good amount of knowledge about this topic. And um, basically the, the, the difficult part of this um, process is not um, to summon your Tesla or to send the signal or, or whatever it might be. It literally is just to train the model to recognize this thought, this, like this lots and loads amount of information to be a thought. So you need to naturally know how to trigger that. So it's not like you just think about it and it happens. You, as a human being, also have to learn to communicate to this interface. But as soon as you got like figured that out and we as humans figured out where in the brain it, the, the best area, so to speak, is to, to capture that thought, the rest is easy, uh, <laughs> relatively speaking. So I, th I think that could be something that is not that far in the future. And I think it would be one of the first um, usability features or nice to have things, so to speak, that um, Neuralink will offer as it is quite a um, trivial task. It's, it's very similar to thoughts like moving your leg or moving your arm. And all those, um, they showed this in the presentation or demonstration rather, um, as well that they are already able to predict the movement of the legs of a pig um, to an astonishing um, accurability. And kind of, if you think about um, what the task of summoning a Tesla, for example, is, it's also just a thought about movement. And chances are that this thought is very similar to the area where you kind of trigger subconsciously your, your movement of your legs and your arms. So I think that would be something very interesting to look into in, in the near future. Um, and all those kind of things are very similar when it comes to technically very simple thoughts like movement uh, that we could actually profit from that or benefit from that very early on. Now the next topic is something that they only scratched the, the surface because um, it's actually what I expected. But for me personally, it's the most interesting part of this dis entire discussion about Neuralink and brain-machine interfaces, and that is consciousness. Now, I understand that for most people, this isn't their um, primary objective to, to figure out what consciousness is all about and using Neuralink to, to discover consciousness. But if you think about it, it kind of is... <laughs> no pun intended, but a no-brainer because you technically work on this project and the more you work on this project, you more uh, the more you figure out about how brains work, essentially. And at some point we will be able, no doubt about this, to basically know if consciousness is actually physically related to a certain or maybe the entire brain or if it is something like in another realm so to speak and I'm using Elon Musk's word uh, words here um, it's not like a, a religious or spir uh, sp spiritual thing that I refer to but rather as a scientist you you have the interest in, in figuring out the the truth pretty much and it's very important to focus on what you actually know, what you assume, and what you can interpret into something. And as of right now, we know that our brain is um, pretty much the main controller for our bodies, and therefore probably also our consciousness. But when it comes to actually knowing what it is, we are quite limited. 
we have some predictions and we assume that it is just a part of our brain, but we don't actually know. And I'm not saying that this is not the case. Um, I actually believe that the con our consciousness is something very similar to the principle of the uh, anthropic principle. So if you think about the brain as, as like the concept of controlling um, electrical currents, what essentially it breaks down to, I believe that it's very likely that our consciousness is also just a part of the brain, like um, the, the amygdala or the um, frontal cortex or whatever, uh, but we don't quite nail down where our consciousness actually is, or maybe it's just um, just the overall coordination between all those different sections or something like that. And we just think that consciousness is something entirely different than trivial tasks in the brain because the consciousness is the only thing that we actually really experience actively, so to speak. And naturally that makes us very skeptical that consciousness is similar to other things in, in our brain. But if you think about it, this would be the only logical explanation. Maybe and probably the consciousness part of our brain is the most developed or the most advanced part. But that doesn't mean that it is totally different from anything else. Now, I don't believe 100% that this is the case. Um, I think that's the most likely case. But there's also a different point of view that I think is quite interesting. And this could be that consciousness, in fact, is something different. It's still part of the brain, but it's not... It doesn't work the same way as just simple calculations and basically tasks and actions that are triggered. And what I mean by that is basically when you think about when you think about a system, just a very simple system where you have some um, some different electrical devices that do perform certain tasks, like very simple tasks like turning on lights uh, or, or like a switch that is electrically turned on and off, um, you, like a combination of transistors, resistors and all that, um, that electrical stuff. It, it's very simple simple idea but once you add complexity to it and you add and add and add and add and you get to a point where the system itself is so complex that the idea of the system itself becomes its own part of the system um if that makes sense it's um without going into like too much into detail i think it would be quite helpful to to take the uh, group theory um, from a mathematical point of view into this uh, calculation as well. But um, to keep it simple for this podcast right now, what I mean by that is when we talk about information and you have a task that is doing technically a very simple thing and that is just taking an input, processing it, and giving you an output, which basically is what a algorithm does. And you have billions and billions and billions of them together into one kind of um, isolated system, which our brain is. We can take input through our senses, like touch, smell, um, audio, but the system itself is kind of isolated. Now, what I could imagine is that the, the complexity is so complex relative to, to other um, intelligent performance or intelligent tasks that you see in animals, for example, that at this level, the, the, the consciousness kind of gets created at this level 
and the consciousness literally is nothing else than just the existence of the complexity. Now, um, if I, I would try to explain it to you in in very physical terms and give you proof, but naturally we don't have any of that right now. We are still working on that. But this is something that I could imagine would be, it would make most sense to me, but I don't think that it is the most likeliest explanation. I would go with like the first thing that I mentioned earlier with like 70% likely like probability. And what I just said is like 30%, but I still think it's possible, but this would be just too perfect to, to be true um, because it would make sense. And if something complex like consciousness makes sense to consciousness, it kind of screams for fatal error of the simulation or something like that. So um, I'm very curious to see what um, future research about this topic would show. Um, yeah, but what I want to go back to now in this part of, of the, the episode in this podcast is what I mentioned earlier, and that is vision. Now, I the day after the presentation and, and the couple of next days after Neuralink presented their working prototype, there were couple of different articles published uh, from The Verge to CNN to pretty much every major and also minor news outlet with different objectives to the story. And you could tell just by reading the, the, the meta information of, of the writer, of the author, who this person is who is writing the story. And it really pretty much breaks down to one comment that Elon Musk made, and that is regarding the supervision part. Now, when he was asked about the, the topic about um, pretty much um, intercepting the communication between the eye and the brain and kind of taking the information from the brain no, sorry, from, from the eye and kind of source it back into the brain again, that this would restore vision, which is logical and, and makes sense. Now, he also added, well, technically you could just add, so, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the exact quote, as it was like, um, like two or three or four minutes when he spoke about that, but you could technically just add a, an external sensor which you kind of trim to a certain frequency that doesn't have to be in the visi uh, visible spectrum of light, but could be infrared, UV, whatever. And he said something like, um, just name it. You, you name the frequency, the wavelength, and we can give you the vision. And people kind of thought about this in two different ways. So you could either tell by someone who was more like, well, you talked about supervision and this sounds more like science fiction and it won't be probably in like the next 100 or 1000 years or something like that where you can actually get supervision and, and they like really portray that as um, Marvel, science fiction, Iron Man kind of stuff. But if you think about it, it's actually not that, not at all that um, far-fetched. And if you take a look at some articles published by more science-based and, and written by people who actually have an, an understanding of science or are actually scientists, that they approach this topic from a complete different point of view. And if you, like you, you the listener, um, don't or belong more to the people who are interested in science, but you don't have this much of background in science, then what I'm about to um, kind of talk about it would be quite uh, no pun intended but eye-opening and if you're a scientist um, or have a more fundamental understanding about science and, and physics and all of all this stuff in general i really be interested and curious to know what your um, your feedback and your 
thoughts about this topic are. And this is how it would be possible to use supervision and what it actually means. And it all breaks down to a very human property. And that is that we as humans take things for granted that are very, very, very specific to human experiences. And it kind of, again, breaks down to the anthropic principle, but essentially things like colors is the thing that we, th we take for granted as, well, yeah, they exist. People have different preferences. Um, for some reason, many people like blue and red, and then you have like green and purple. And for some reason, nobody uh, likes really orange and, and, um, and, and, and yellow or something like that. But here comes the interesting point that each human being sees... I want to be careful with what I say, but simply speaking, sees colors differently. Each human being has its own set of colors and nobody experiences the colors the same way as you do. Now, our vision system is actually very similar from each human to, to human, but that only allows us to, if we say, well, that is blue. And other people who also look at this object would also say, well, that is blue, yeah. But what we say or what we think about as a color is completely different for them because they interpret or their brain interprets a wavelength as something that then we experience as color. But it is totally different. It's the same, but totally different, if that makes sense. And this is where it gets quite tricky. And um, I have to admit that a long time, it was quite difficult for me to really grasp the, the scope of what colors actually are and how it works. But the interesting part is um, not related to that, but rather the idea of having supervision, because it's actually something that is super common in, in reality. And I'm not speaking about like weird experiments in the lab where they create like a rat with supervision that can see UV lights. Not, not that, it's much more easy, uh, much easier. And that is that different animals, specifically mammals, have what we refer to as supervision. They can see outside our human visible light scope or spectrum. And only because we refer to infrared or UV as not visible just mean that this is actually what it is. Now, there is technically no difference between a blue frequency, a red frequency, and or wavelength and infrared wavelength other than it has different properties but if our eyes were just slightly set up differently they would be able to also see infrared and our complete reality would change but our perception would change the the universe itself as it is reality so to speak would still be the same we just would perceive it completely differently and here's the the interesting part um to kind of paraphrase some scientific facts and uh, please bear with me here because i try to uh, kind of abstract scientific facts into a more comprehensible uh, fashion meaning uh, so in a way that we can can actually use this this knowledge and this these scientific facts to to get an idea of what is going on. The eye of a human being has technically four sensors, um, but we can differentiate between three of them and one of them. And this is color and contrast. So one part of the, the eye is responsible for detecting 
in easy terms, contrast. So what is dark and what is, what is bright? And we are pretty good at that. In fact, the part of the eye that is detecting contrast is much, much, much more important than detecting different colors. And you can see this in action by talking to someone who doesn't have such a good, good color vision or is maybe even colorblind or has like a red green, um, uh, how do you call it? Um, like red green color issue. Uh, I'm not getting the, the right term right now, but anyway. And for them, it seems like the world doesn't seem to be that much of a difference between like they, they don't really experience this as a, a handicap or something because for them it's normal and they can kind of see pretty much the same if you would compare a picture taken from this human being who's colorblind and someone who isn't. And this is because we are we rely so much more on, on brightness and contrast than on actual color. Now, the color part is divided into these three different sensors. One sensor detects the distinct frequency of red, one of blue, and one of green. Henceforth, RGB. If all those all those receptors are faced with the same intensity of light, so red detects 100%, whatever 100% might be, but 100% of light at this frequency or this wavelength, Green detects 100% of light at it at well its wavelength and blue the same. Then we see this as white. If they don't detect anything, well then literally it's black, but or no light at all, so to speak. But the interesting part comes at a range between red and green. Now, if you take a look at the, the spectrum, you can see that the difference between red and green is much bigger than between green and blue. And if you go through the colors, you would realize that if you go from green to blue, you get from green to like, like teal to blue. But again, there isn't like, like teal wouldn't, like no one would probably refer to teal as its own actual color. It's more like a combination, like halfway through green and blue. This is how we perceive it. Now, if we go back to red and green, well, there is yellow and orange in between there, but specifically yellow. Most people would refer to yellow as its own distinct color. But truth is that almost no human is actually capable of perceiving yellow. When we see yellow, we only see not a lot of red, not a lot of green and no blue. But we don't actually see a lot of yellow because we can't actually perceive yellow. It's just something that our brain through evolution over the last whatever thousands and thousands and thousands of years learned to, or not, not really learned, but kind of made more efficient to calculate what or interpret that this must be yellow then. And this is quite interesting because if you take a look at the human eye, it's quite common to see humans who actually in fact still have a receptor for where yellow would be. Now, again, please don't take me too literal here. I'm trying to um, kind of pack information that is very detailed and has very slight nuances into a one line sentence, pretty much. Uh, so if you're interested in that, I encourage you to research on your own. There are a lot of very interesting documentations going from National Geographic, uh, over different YouTube channels that you should definitely check out where there are more detailed explanations of what that actually means, what I'm talking about. But to, again, to, to make it very simple here, there are human beings who have a fourth receptor and this receptor is roughly in the area where we perceive yellow. 
That leads us to the conclusion that decades, well, centuries or whatever years ago, humans actually had a fourth receptor and they actually did actively measure and receive information of a frequency or wavelength that is roughly in the yellow area of a, our visible spectrum of light. But most people who do have this receptor, this fourth receptor, don't really use this receptor anymore. It's still there, but it's not used. It perceives light, but the brain doesn't care about this because it can calculate the wavelength of yellow through a smart algorithm that we call a neural network in our brain based on organic matter that this must be yellow if it has the information from green and red. Very simple. And <laughs> again, I, I just want uh, to, to prove you that this is not that far-fetched, is that we think about color as a circle, which necessarily, well, technically speaking, isn't the case. We go from red on the left side all the way through the right side where we get blue. Now, if you would mix red and blue and you got, would go from blue to red, you get purple. And I personally, this is actually a very interesting story, um, but truth is purple is an illusion. Purple doesn't exist. Purple doesn't have a frequency. It's a, an overlap between blue light and red light. And naturally, in between there is, is green. So if we think, okay, wait, we have red and green and we can interpret this as yellow. Why don't we interpret red and blue as green? Well, our brain kind of tricks us in a sense. And it says, well, if you have red and blue, again, I'm really breaking it down to, <laughs> to the easiest way I can explain that, uh, you get purple. And... Personally, for me, I experienced something roughly at the age of, I would say, 17 or 18, where we got more beautiful-looking displays. The um, LED displays became more popular, and it kind of everybody had an LED panel somewhere, let it be your TV or desktop monitor, whatever it might be, and. Then something like QLED happened, and um, so the quantum dot, I believe it's called LED, and basically LG's version of their LED display where you actually have true black because no LED is actually lit up. Now, when I was looking at those screens, and it's the same, so if you are um, watching this on YouTube, you also have the video, I'm pointing at my um, display behind me, and when I look at the display, and I have a very large patch, or swatch, or whatever you want to call it, of purple, I can't stare at purple for longer than a few seconds, because it drives me mad. Um, and I was so confused by that so many years until I um, found out what literally is happening in my brain. And that is that I'm looking at something and my brain tries to tell me, this is purple, this is purple, this is a weird, I, I know what this is. But for some reason, I have difficulties seeing purple, which is quite fascinating to me. And I, I never really thought, like, knew why purple looked so weird to me. It was like looking at... Um, um, something, well, for those who might not know what I'm referring to, but let's go into a club and you have like this light that kind of turns everything like that is white into something like purple. It was the same, like a similar um, experience, so to speak. So I was looking, or, or when I'm looking at purple, it doesn't feel real to me. It, it doesn't convince me that this is actually the case. And, and um, well, truth is, it's true that I'm not convinced by my own brain that this is actually purple, because it's not. 
And I would be very interested to know if um, some of the viewers and listeners, so you, I'm talking to you directly, you know, experienced something similar. Um, on my research about this topic, I started um, two or three years ago. Initially, I found out that this is something that quite a few people do experience, but um, in different intensities, so to speak. Some people have like a light shimmer when they look at purple on, on displays. Some people actually see it very clearly like this. This, this is kind of like an illusion or something. And the interesting part is that on my research about this topic, I stumbled about something called um, tetrachromatic people, or eyes, rather. So, again, usually people have three receptors, or they use at least three receptors. And this is called trichromatic vision. And I hope I'm pronouncing this um, correctly, because my native... Um, well, I, I do speak fluent English, but I... I actually um, was born in Germany, so my main mother tongue is German. I, I hope you forgive me if I um, kind of butcher the, the, the words here um, the way you would pronounce or like people pronounce it in English. Um, I always find it very interesting because I, I studied Latin as well. And I do pronounce Latin words in a Latin accent, so to speak. And I found it quite interesting when people use... Um, Latin words, but pronounce it in an English way, which kind of sounds funny to me. But anyway, different topic for a different time. Basically, tetrachromates do have the ability to see still a fourth color. So there are quite a few animals that are tetrachromates. So they have four receptors and they are actually able to see not only in our visible spectrum of light, but their vision expands in one direction of our visible spectrum of light. And this is why, for example, honeybees do see the world very different than we do. And you should definitely research and you should always keep in mind when you see like pictures. Oh, this is how a honeybee sees. It's a interpretation and translation in our vision. So it's not actually how a honeybee sees. It doesn't see yellow and purple. It sees their own two different distinct colors and if you translate them into our like linearly translate them into our vision spectrum it would be purple and yellow but it's actually not but the interesting part is that those humans that are tetrachromates can actually still see so to speak they still measure from their fourth receptor and this receptor as i mentioned earlier is located roughly in the area where we interpret yellow. That literally means that these people do see actually yellow. But for them, it isn't yellow because they can distinct much more detailed in the spectrum that is reserved for the, the yellow area. And for us, it's just yellow. We take a look outside. Um, currently, there is like a delivery truck from DHL there, it's completely yellow, we see yellow. So I'm personally not a tetrachromate, um, I can only see my, my illusional interpreted version of yellow, but people who do see yellow kind of have their own vision and it's very interesting because um, I would really encourage you to google this, there are some tetrachromates who are artists and they use their ability to draw pictures which for us humans just looks like a complete mess of different shades of yellow but for them they can actually see what they are really drawing or painting there and you could imagine this in the sense that take a, a picture of like a landscape picture and like, for example, okay, I'm currently running Logic in the background to record the audio, but um, my background is the Big Sur Mac OS 11.0 wallpaper. Take this picture and convert it into grayscale. Now, you would still see what this is, but technically it's just one, one scale and this is dark or light. There's no color involved, what, what we would say. And the interesting part is, if you would do the same thing, 
with kind of, again, translated to tetrachromates, they do have their color spectrum inside yellow. And if you would just flatten it, for us, it's just different shades of, of, of yellow. And the difference is actually much more bigger because for us, this the spectrum of yellow is just so small. And if you would just take, let's say, a quarter of a grayscale image, so you would really push the boundaries, it would kind of go into a, well, there are different shades of black and white, but I can't really identify what this is. Um, and I hope this kind of makes sense because it's always weird to talk about something that we can't perceive because you have to imagine it or interpret it in an um, abstract way. It's the similar thing if you talk about a tesseract, a four-dimensional cube, for example. It is possible to think about n-dimensional things if you know how to think about them. So um, it's not really an eye-opening um, thing, but if you really understand how to imagine and work with those uh, n-dimensional things, it allows you to abstract complete different concepts. And the similar thing applies here, I, I would say. And again, if you, by the way, if you're interested in these n-dimensional tesseract kind of cubes, I would definitely recommend you to check out the YouTube channel. Um, oh, hopefully I don't switch it around. Three blue, one brown. Uh, so Grant Sanderson is a really, really talented and skilled mathematician. And he has a YouTube channel where he explains those sort of things. So it reaches actually from neural networks to also um, quaternions and, and four-dimensional cubes and all that kind of cool stuff. So I would, if you're interested in this and you really want to understand this, I would definitely recommend you check out his videos on YouTube. But again, back to my point, the truth is that supervision is something that some of humans, like if you take supervision as the, the by definition that you are able to see something that is not in our visible spectrum of light. So not only seeing distinct red, distinct green and distinct blue and interpreting everything in between, but actually having a fourth receptor and pretty much um, processing a fourth input of a distinct wavelength. If you can like define this as supervision, then some of as humans, I, I believe it's something like three to 5%, if I'm not mistaken, but um, I would have to look this up again, actually. Um, then some of human, of us humans are actually also already equipped with supervision. And if you know that, the, the I don't want to call it a claim because it's not really a claim, it's just a fact, but let's go with it. The claim that Neuralink can give you supervision isn't, that far-fetched, like not at all. If you have a sensor, and we do have <laughs> sensors that are able to sense and measure ultraviolet, so UV, infrared, X-ray, gamma ray, pretty much the entire spectrum of photons, it's just sensical to feed this feed of information into our brains and process it. If we are like, if we are already, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> let me try this again. If we are already equipped with the, or we have the proof that humans are able to process a fourth receptor information, then we just have to feed this receptor information into that point where our brain gets the information from our eyes. It's literally that simple. I mean, the, the concept is simple. Putting this into practice is like a whole other topic, but the team at Neuralink kind of proved already that they are very capable of doing that. But the, the overall concept of supervision is like astonishingly simple. It's, it's insane how, how easy it actually is to think about this. So long story short, what I wanted to say is that supervision isn't a Iron Man kind of claim that is science fiction and if it might ever happen it's probably not gonna happen like in the next thousand years. No, that's not true. I do believe that supervision is a thing that depending on how fast we can progress 
how many people are interested in this topic. So again, our society relies on online financials and how we can kind of gather the funds to, to, to actively research in this topic and also make use of the works at MIT when it comes to um, computer vision and Tesla and Neuralink that we can actually get to supervision in like the first prototypes within the next 10 years and to a more accessible commercial version, so to speak, in the next 20 to 30 years, at least in my opinion. Um, because again, the concept is simple. We already have proof that it is possible and the proof is by nature itself. Humans, some humans are actually already equipped with supervision, just that their supervision is not infrared or, well, UV, for example, but it's simply speaking, yellow. Um, <laughs> I, I know it sounds lame, but it really isn't. It's the same concept. It doesn't matter which wavelength it is. As Elon Musk said, name the frequency or name the wavelength and we can give you this vision. It's the same concept, the same principle. And yeah, I'm really curious again, depending on who you are, depending if you have a, on, if you have a scientific background or not, what your opinion about this is, your thoughts, and if you would agree with me about um, the, um, yeah, basically the time scale, depending on our, our work efforts, if we can actually get a functioning prototype of supervision in the next 10 years or so. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and uh, especially if you are interested in in these types of um, topics when it comes to brain-machine interfaces and AI, machine learning, deep learning, all those kind of cool things that await us in the not so far but rather near future, I would definitely recommend you, well not recommend, I would ask you to watch the presentation and demonstration of Neuralink. You can find it on YouTube. And again, I will put a description, a link in the description of this podcast. Also check out Lex, uh, yeah, Lex, Lex Friedman's episode um, on his YouTube channel or his podcast about um, Neuralink. It's half an hour. It's definitely worth listening to. <clears throat> excuse me and i would also encourage you to um visit 3d uh <laughs> three blue one brown again <laughs> um if you're interested in more diving deeper into the topic because he uh, to, to understand his videos you really have to have a background in, in physics or mathematics but it's super fun to watch it and yeah i think that's it for the first episode I will see you again next week. Stay safe and um, I don't know. I, I was trying to make a cool line with like incorporating supervision and I, whatever. Hopefully AI will help me form my words better in the future. <laughs>